Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. In the past several weeks, by the grace of God, this program has been blessed with multitudes of new listeners. In fact, our Sovereign Lord has taken what Christians should know to ears across the globe. Now, people are listening to the program not only in North America, but in South America, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and New Zealand. So to everyone who has been listening, allow me to say thank you. To everyone who has recently joined us, allow me to say a heartfelt welcome. May God shine His face upon you, and I pray that the Lord continues to bless each and every one of you with a greater and greater understanding of His truth. Now, for those listeners who are new to what Christians should know, we have different series running simultaneously under the banner of WCSK. We've been doing this since the start. So, for example, if you go back to July 2015, you'll see episodes that begin with the number one, like 1.2 or 1.5. Those episodes discuss core doctrines of the Christian faith. Episodes that start with the number five make the Bible ridiculously simple by summarizing the big ideas of every book of God's Word. One podcast, multiple series. It's all one big happy house with different rooms for different things. I say all that to say that now we begin a new series, number seven. It's called The Wisdom of Proverbs. Why are we studying Proverbs, you may ask? Well, that's simple. We're studying Proverbs to gain something that I, and what every human being desperately needs, wisdom. Wisdom enables a person to prosper in life according to God's standard of prosperity. Wisdom makes a person competent and skillful at life so they not only know what to do, but how to do it. Let's face reality. People want to win at life. They want to know how to be successful, how to get rich, how to get ahead, and how to win in their relationships so they can have the best marriage ever or to be the best parents ever. Christians are people, so this desire for winning at life does not change when you are saved. Now, when people search for answers on how to win, they are in essence searching for wisdom. They search for skills or practical advice on how to win-win-win in three easy steps. The sad reality, however, is that many Christians will search for wisdom in lots of different worldly places and in many cases end up paying lots of money for it in the process. Many Christians do this while neglecting the book that does not contain the wisdom of men on earth, it contains the wisdom of God of heaven. That book, of course, is the Bible. So if the Bible contains divine wisdom, then why do so many believers ignore it? Because they either think it is outdated or that it does not offer much practical advice. The result is that Christians turn away from God's word. What many may fail to realize is that turning away from God in search of alternate wisdom has been tried over and over again, and each and every time the quest fails miserably. In fact, the search for wisdom separate from God began in the Garden of Eden. And look at what happened there. In paradise, Adam and Eve were living in paradise. 
God had already provided them with everything they needed. They were living in perfect harmony with God and therefore in perfect harmony with each other and creation. Before the fall, Adam and Eve saw the world as God saw it and life was not fractured by sin. Then what happened? The serpent invited our first parents to doubt God and to search for wisdom and knowledge separate and distinct from the Lord. The result? Adam sinned. Sin fractured the relationship between man and God, between man and man, and between man and creation. Enter guilt, shame, discontentment, doubt, anger, covetousness, frustration, and a huge gap between what God desires for His children and the life that we actually live. Sin is the ultimate reason why the world is broken and why there are barriers between the perfect wisdom that God has provided and what people actually search for. But even more than that, there are Christians like me who may in fact search the Bible for wisdom and find it, but the problem now is we ignore the wisdom that we discover. That is what sin does to warp thinking. It is therefore not a matter of just knowing, it's a matter of doing. It's not a matter of actually lacking wisdom, it's a matter of actually using it. Reality tells us over and over again that even when we know better, we do things that are foolish. What all of this tells us is that we are in desperate need of wisdom to guide us. We cannot rely on broken, fallible human wisdom to lead us astray. We need perfect, infallible, divine wisdom to lead us to God. We find that divine wisdom in the Bible, specifically in the book of Proverbs. As Proverbs 2.6 says, everything that comes out of the mouth of God is wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Biblical wisdom is not an idea or a list of practical how-tos. Godly wisdom is a person, and His name is Jesus Christ. Wisdom begins with your vertical relationship with Jesus, and once you are right with God, then you can be right in your relationships and with life in general. Hence, by studying the wisdom of Proverbs, what I hope everyone is graced with is the ability to see reality more and more the way God sees reality, the way reality is supposed to be according to the Creator of creation. When a person has their eyes open to see Him, what then becomes clearer and clearer is how to skillfully navigate the minutia, subtleties, and complexities of everyday life. At the end of the day, God is the Creator and He made the world to operate in a precise and specific way. If you therefore want to be competent to navigate life, why search anywhere else other than the author of reality? Knowing God means knowing how reality actually works and being enabled to actually live an abundant life according to God's pattern. So let us begin our study of Proverbs. Now before we dive into an exposition, we must clarify terms. As I have already said, in the book of Proverbs, we learn godly wisdom and the art of practical living. This begs two questions. Number one, what is a proverb? And number two, what is wisdom? The first question is, what is a proverb? The first thing we must note is that when culture at large talks about a popular proverb, that refers to something distinct from a biblical proverb. A popular proverb is a pithy saying that condenses wisdom learned from human experience into a short sentence. 
Examples are, absence makes the heart grow fonder, or a fool and his money are soon parted. Ironically, commonly known proverbs can contradict each other. Compare, for example, look before you leap, and he who hesitates is lost. Regardless, because these sayings are commonly known, they are thus popular and tend to be regarded with some degree of respect. But guess what? Biblical proverbs are not popular. They are not popular because they contain God's wisdom and many people despise what God has to say. In fact, biblical proverbs are so unpopular, wisdom has to stand at the gate of the city and shout and plead for people to listen to her. Proverbs 1, 20-21, and Proverbs 8, verses 1-3. A biblical proverb therefore has currency not in and amongst the popular crowd, but in and amongst those who revere the Lord. So in general, what a biblical proverb is, it's a lesson. It's a lesson that takes the form of a short, pithy saying that expresses truth about human behavior. That short pithy saying is also useful in that when a person lives the truth contained in the proverb, they become skillful in navigating the twists and turns in life. Biblical proverbs are not wisdom learned by human experience. They are revealed and thus gifted by God himself. Now before we move on, a critical key to reading and interpreting the Proverbs is to realize that they fall in the genre of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry tends to be very compact and expresses truth in the form of figurative, expressive language. Metaphors are common, and it also frequently engages humor, sarcasm, and parallel comparisons and contrasts. We therefore do not read the Proverbs like historical narrative or like prophecy, nor do we read it like a letter written to a first century church. We read the Proverbs like Hebrew poetry. In plain English, this means Proverbs does not contain hard and fast rules of life, so you cannot treat them as imperative commands or rigid formulas. They express truths that apply generally but are not absolute. Probably the most well-known application of this interpretive principle can be appreciated by looking at Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. That text says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, does this verse suggest that as long as every parent trains up their child the right way, that they are guaranteed never to stray? The answer is, of course not. The first reason why is because this is Hebrew poetry, not God saying, thou shalt. The second reason why is because the Bible itself proves that this statement is not a hard rule of life. That is to say, the Bible gives us plenty of examples of evil parents who had pious children. It also provides plenty of examples of pious parents who did train up their child only for them to rebel. The simple point is that when reading Proverbs, read them like poetry. They are neither laws, nor are they promises. So that's what a proverb is. The next question is, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the key term in Proverbs. It occurs more than 40 times. The simplest definition of wisdom can be found in the Hebrew word chokma, which essentially means skillful. But more than just raw skill, wisdom is skill in navigating the twists and turns of reality. 
wisdom also refers to having a proper moral compass so that a person does what is right. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is a matter of life or death. Why? Because it refers to competence with regards to the realities of life. Wisdom means seeing the world the way God sees it and therefore seeing how life really works. Of course, how life really works is according to God's rules. Wisdom thus means knowing what is right and then doing the right thing. All of that is what wisdom is. Wisdom is not intelligence. Wisdom is not a high IQ. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is knowing what to do with knowledge. A man can gain knowledge just by looking around and obtaining facts. But the only way a man can get wisdom is if he looks up and receives the gift of wisdom from God. We live in a day and age when plenty of folks are really, really intelligent with heads brimming over with knowledge. But in God's eyes, these people are all fools. When the Bible speaks of a fool, it's not talking about a person who is intellectually deficient. It's talking about a person who has made a moral failure and is pursuing wickedness. As a result, the high IQ individual who does not know how to apply their knowledge is a fool who uses his knowledge in ungodly ways. Thus, as Psalm 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. While the wise person sees reality as God sees it, the fool tries to live life independent of the Lord. In the ancient world, teachers were regarded with high esteem. That was so because the ancients knew that wisdom is a precious treasure, so the teachers of wisdom were highly regarded. Back then, people knew that wisdom was the key to navigating life successfully, so a pervasive worldview asked questions like, how can I get more wisdom? And how can I conform to what wisdom teaches? Many people realized they were lacking in wisdom and therefore desperately sought it. The great Greek philosopher Socrates lived about 400 years before Christ. He once said, quote, The only true wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing. End quote. Today, people have their priorities inverted. Nowadays, people think they know everything and do what is right in their own eyes. Now, we regard teachers as lowly and regard entertainers as royalty. Now, people tend not to seek wisdom. Instead, they want reality to bend to their wishes and seek for a quick technique to unlock the hidden secrets of life. These individuals are not wise because they neglect the source of all wisdom, God himself. So I hope now everyone is clear as to what a proverb is and what wisdom is. Putting it all together, what the book of Proverbs therefore contains are short wisdom lessons taught by God. A huge benefit of studying Proverbs then is that a man becomes wise. A wise person can respond accordingly to the diversity of situations life presents. They can do this because they understand what's really going on in said situations. A wise person can make good choices because their choices are informed by God. Now it's time to finally get to our theme verses. What I will do today is describe seven features of wisdom based on the first seven verses of the book of Proverbs. So, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding. 
to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The first feature of wisdom, number one, is that wisdom is royal. Verse number one says, The Proverbs of Solomon the son of David, king of Israel. It's not a mistake that the first thing we learn about the Proverbs is that they are of Solomon. Solomon, of course, was the king who ruled after his father David. Now, it must be mentioned that all of the Proverbs in the whole book are not Solomon's. His Proverbs can be found in chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 22, verse 16. What remains are sayings of the wise, the sayings of King Agur, and the sayings of King Lemuel. When I say that wisdom is royal, what I mean is that it enables an individual to rule well, to lead well, to guide people well. Just as Proverbs 1.8 tells us, King Solomon is imparting his wisdom to his literal and figurative sons. Wisdom moves from a king to a son who will one day be king. This royal training in wisdom is necessary because all you need to make a new ruler is for the king and queen to make a baby. But to make a good king, what he needs is wisdom. This point is validated by what the text says in Proverbs 8 verses 15 to 16. There, wisdom is personified, and when she speaks, she says, By me, kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who judge rightly. More than father to son, wisdom also moves from a king to his subjects, who can therein impart wisdom to others and the next generation. Subsequently, the youth of the next generation will one day be in a position to lead. Ultimately, in the book of Proverbs, the ultimate king, God himself, is imparting his divine wisdom to his spiritual sons and daughters. At the end of the day, we know that Solomon's wisdom did not start with Solomon. It was gifted by God. How do we know that? The Bible tells us so. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, Solomon is king. He admits to the Lord that he needs help to rule well. In verse 9, Solomon says, So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? In 1 Kings 3, verses 10 to 12, the text tells us that this request pleased God and that he responded by giving Solomon a wise and discerning heart. So wisdom is royal, meaning it equips leaders to lead well. A wise leader begets wise subjects, producing a kingdom governed and ordered by wisdom. But what do you get if you have a leader who lacks wisdom? The answer is chaos, immorality, and self-destruction. And what's worse, people tend to follow the person in charge. So if the king is a fool, so are the subjects. Now you have a kingdom full of fools, with everyone doing what is right in their own foolish eyes. In fact, in the history of ancient Israel's kings, Solomon was the exception to the rule in that he ruled with great wisdom. Most kings ruled with great foolishness. 
This is detailed in the legacy of kings recorded in the books of Kings and Chronicles. The general rule was that the king rejected wisdom and the nation subsequently fell into idolatry, prompting God's just judgment. A prime example is King Ahab and Queen Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. With so many foolish kings, it's no wonder that the overall history of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah after Solomon's reign was a progressive descent farther and farther away from the Lord. The end result was the kingdom was destroyed by God himself when he banished his people out of the promised land. So feature of wisdom number one is that wisdom is royal. Feature of wisdom number two is that wisdom is corrective. Verse number two says, To know wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding. As I mentioned before, the wisdom in Proverbs is revealed by God, but a major barrier to a person becoming wise is not access to wisdom. After all, we live in an age where almost anyone can reach for an open Bible or get to read Proverbs within a few seconds on their smartphone. At least in the West, the issue is not access to wisdom. The issue is that people reject instruction. The other way of translating this word instruction in Proverbs 1-2 is discipline. Therefore, those who are wise receive discipline to correct moral faults. In other words, they receive discipline that corrects. It corrects thinking that is out of line with what God says. God is the only one who has it all figured out. He does not need correction, but we do. Once a person understands that they only know a teeny tiny piece of the big picture, then they become open to being disciplined. The person who always needs to be corrected is me. I am corrected by God's word that says, actually, this is what's right. I am also corrected by other people who provide wise counsel, which can correct my own foolish counsel. Instruction or discipline therefore implies being in relationships where other individuals can issue warnings, rebukes, and possibly even punish when a person refuses correction. A prime example of such relationship is being under the authority of a local church where a pastor, elders, or older Christians can provide corrective discipline. Wisdom corrects the erroneous idea that I can autonomously use and apply my own intellect. Furthermore, because the wise person is open to correction, this implies a sense of humility. Verse 2 says, To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding. It goes without saying that if a student does not understand the teacher's words, neither wisdom nor instruction can be gained. But even more than that, wisdom also equips a person to discern. This word carries the meaning of not only being able to insightfully understand, but also to perceive very subtle differences between things. In plain English, this means that a wise person is able to see things in black and white when others can only see gray. The discerning person can look beyond and beneath what they sense on the surface and obtain a clear picture of what's really going on. They see directly into the heart of an issue and therefore can carefully consider and make choices. So feature number two of wisdom is that wisdom is corrective. Feature of wisdom number three is that wisdom is 
ethical. Verse number three says, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. This feature is very straightforward. Figuratively speaking, wisdom actually has a heart that desires the truth. Wisdom has a conscience, distinguishes between right and wrong, and then does good. Wisdom does not endlessly pontificate and remain idle in real life. It's important not to miss that because wisdom manifests in behavior. It's not just spoken about. Wisdom is not mere philosophy. It is lived by its adherents. Wisdom is evidenced by prudent behavior visible in righteousness, justice, and equity. If we consider righteousness, justice, and equity together, what we have are three things that characterize the rule of a wise king. Hence, these fundamental virtues speak to the expected practice of a good ruler. Righteousness refers to that which is right. Justice refers to properly deciding a legal case and executing the right sentence. Equity refers to an even fairness so that everything moving forward will be smooth. Wisdom is ethical and is therefore not self-directed. Wisdom actually has a sincere concern about other people in society because it would be unwise not to be concerned. Wisdom is well aware that if unrighteousness, injustice, and prejudice run rampant, the root of said problems is foolish godlessness. If that is allowed to grow without correction, society crumbles from within under the just wrath of God. Romans 1.18 Wisdom therefore yearns for righteousness, justice, and equity on a societal level to maintain the vitality and integrity of society. Because wisdom is ethical, one cannot be wise and indifferent to his neighbor. Feature of wisdom number four Wisdom means maturing. Verse number four says, To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. Verse number four tells us that wisdom does two things. It gives prudence to the naive so that they will no longer be naive, and it gives knowledge and discretion to youth who lack experience. Hence, wisdom means maturing in that it grows people. According to the book of Proverbs, people are categorized into different groups. For example, wise and foolish, old and young. Based on the logic of verse number four, there is nothing inherently wrong about being young and naive because wisdom and time mature a person and gift experience. Belonging to either of these two categories would only be an issue if the naive remained naive and the young remained juvenile in their worldview. The first thing that wisdom does is give prudence to the naive. Prudence refers to a craftiness or a good sense of how to do things. The wise person who is prudent therefore not only has insight to see what's really going on, they also have the foresight to know how to proceed. And who does wisdom give prudence to? The naive. The naive are people who are easily duped. They merely go with the flow and tend to believe the first thing they hear. Generally speaking, the Hebrew word for naive suggests someone who lacks understanding, lacks moral direction, and is therefore inclined to evil. This is not a hard and fast rule, but the naive tend to be young because they haven't had enough life experience to teach them how reality actually works. 
Contrast the naive with the wise veterans of wisdom who have a shrewdness about them because they have seen many things before. The second thing that wisdom does is give knowledge and discretion to the youth. Knowledge here means more than what you can acquire by spending an afternoon at the library. Implied in this word is knowing what God requires and then doing it consistently. Discretion flows from knowledge of the divine moral order and therein equips a person with the power of devising appropriate plans. So wisdom gives prudence to the naive and to the youth knowledge and discretion. To make the meaning of this verse plain, I will draw a lesson from personal experience. When I graduated from medical school, I was literally young, 24 years old. I was a newly minted doctor and intern, yet I was completely useless as a medical care provider. Although I had a head full of book knowledge, I had no idea how to apply that knowledge. Although I may have known what to do to a small degree, I was clueless as to how. I was great at taking tests, but brainless when it came to treating an actual human being. And to top it all off, I was also naive in that as long as a more senior team member told me something, I accepted it as true without considering the validity of the statement. In sum, I was young and naive. I lacked practical knowledge and discretion. So what changed? I learned medical wisdom from more senior, wiser, and experienced physicians. I learned by their examples. I moved from knowing the what, the science of medicine, to learning the how, the art of practicing medicine. You don't learn the latter from a book. That only comes from treating real patients in real life. And the best lesson I learned back then was to first understand that I was young and naive. When a man understands that, then he understands that he is in a position that is deficient and thus seeks to correct that deficiency. It would be the apex of foolishness for a young, naive man to think he has everything figured out, especially if he is following other young, naive people. The young man needs to grow. This is why wisdom means maturing. Verse number five says, A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Feature of wisdom number five is that wisdom never stops gaining wisdom. According to the Bible, the person who is truly wise never says, I've got it all figured out. Verse number five speaks about a person who is already wise, and what does the text say the wise person does? Hear an increase in learning. This hearing is effectual in that what they hear never falls on deaf ears. It causes inward change. Learning comes from a word that means to take or grasp. Hence, this learning does not refer to casual education like someone who browses lectures on YouTube. This is an eager, avid learning so that the learner takes grasp of the material so well they can intelligently articulate it to others and teach it. But not only that, the wise person surrounds themselves with other wise people to create an environment saturated in wisdom. Wise counsel provides a view of reality independent of the self and prevents a person from charting a course mapped by personal desire. Wise counsel thus equips a person with accurate guidance so they travel on the right course. 
wisdom never stops gaining wisdom because someone who is truly wise knows they know absolutely nothing. This is why they are always open to learning more and hearing sound advice. In fact, what the wise will not do is read the book of Proverbs only once. They will mull over it in perpetuity, mining the text for deeper and deeper treasure. They will do this cognizant that no one ever graduates from the biblical school of wisdom. Even the best students are always students. So feature of wisdom number five is that wisdom never stops gaining wisdom. The next point involves verses five and six. So let's read those verses again. A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Feature of wisdom number six is wisdom is understanding. This point is very quick. Seven is the biblical number of divinity, so I wanted to explain seven features of wisdom, not six. As a result, one point had to be very light. So what we see in Proverbs 1 verses 5 to 6 is the repetition of the word understand. This highlights the reality that in all of their acquisition, the wise person gains deep insight into God's truth. In many cases, said insight can only be taught by experiencing the lesson. The end result is an understanding that is so carefully considered and thorough, the wise person is able to discern deeper meanings behind proverbs, figures, and riddles. The Hebrew word for riddles can sometimes refer to allegories, as it does in Ezekiel 17.2. The point is that wisdom enables a person to see things in the text that people without understanding are unable to see. So, if you've ever heard a Bible preacher or teacher faithfully exposit a text you've read dozens of times before, and you say to yourself, I never saw that, then that does not mean that expositor is special. It means the gracious Lord gave that person understanding. So, feature of wisdom number six is that wisdom is understanding. Now we arrive at our final feature of wisdom, number seven. Wisdom is relational. And verse number seven says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Of all the features we have described, this is by far the most important. You see, biblical wisdom is not something impersonal that is buried in a treasure box in a secret place far, far away. Thus, when a person asks themselves, how do I get wisdom? The answer to that question is never distinct or separate from God. Wisdom is relational in that all wisdom is obtained from God and continues to be cultivated by being in a relationship with the Lord. God is the ultimate source of all wisdom. Therefore, if you don't know God, you cannot be wise. Yet, when we fear the Lord and ask Him for wisdom, He graciously supplies. James chapter 1 verse 5. Proverbs 1 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord, therefore, is the chief article that lays the foundation for all the wisdom that is to follow. And because fear of the Lord is the beginning, it is of first importance. Now let us consider the phrase, fear of the Lord. What does this mean? 
Well, it does not mean being afraid that God will at any moment get angry and send down lightning from heaven. According to the editors of the Zondervan NASB Study Bible, fear of the Lord means, quote, a loving reverence for God that manifests as submission to His Lordship and to the commands of His Word, end quote. For scripture references, see Proverbs 9.10, Psalm 111.10, Job 28.28, and Ecclesiastes 12.3. Fear of the Lord therefore means much more than merely fear. In fact, according to Proverbs, fear is a very positive thing. Intellectually, it refers to a response to objective, special revelation. Emotionally, it involves fear, love, and trust. Now, the thinking person may ask themselves, how can I fear God and love God at the same time? Don't the two contradict? And the answer is, they do not. There is a difference between fear of someone that you don't trust and fear of someone that you do trust. For the person who trusts the Lord, on the one hand, they love Him and trust His word. On the other hand, they also believe in His threats and fear Him. Reverent obedience therefore radiates out of adoration and devotion. As a result, the person who loves God fears they may dishonor Him or displease Him. Fear of the Lord means I do not want to break God's heart with my own sin, and so I earnestly obey Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Hence, a person begins on the path of wisdom not by living in subjection to God in only one sphere of life. It means the person begins on the path of wisdom when every aspect of their life is lived under subjection to the Lord. To do otherwise would be foolish, since the Lord is king forever and ever over everything. The beginning of wisdom means you don't hold on to spheres where you reign and where God takes a back seat. The beginning of wisdom means God reigns over your Sunday morning, He reigns over your calendar, He reigns over your checkbook, and He reigns over how you interact with friends over dinner. Do you fear the Lord? Do you revere Him? The simple, minute choices that you make each and every day are legitimate indicators of your genuine answers to those questions. The final thing that I will mention about fear of the Lord and wisdom takes us to the book of Job. In the middle of that book, the text says something very similar to Proverbs 1.7. Here is what Job's 28.28 says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Now, although these two verses say similar things on the surface, in context, they give us two different perspectives on wisdom. Throughout this lesson, we have been talking about wisdom that is obtainable, wisdom that is knowable as revealed by God. But we all ought to recognize the reality that there is a secret wisdom that belongs to God and God alone, Deuteronomy 29.29. That divine wisdom is unobtainable. Romans 11.33 says that God has such a wisdom that is unsearchable, meaning we ought not to even bother looking for it because it is out of reach. In Isaiah 55, 8-9, God speaks and says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
The crucial take-home point, beloved, is that in the mind of God exists a wisdom that we cannot even wrap our minds around. That is how majestic and awesome God is. That is the contextual thrust of Job 28.28. Job chapter 28 begins by telling us that man can labor to find gold, but he cannot mine the wisdom of God. In fact, what Job 28.23-27 explains is that many forces of nature that we consider to be chaotic and out of reach, like the wind, rain, and thunder, those are all in fact under the control of God. The Lord is the one who has wisdom that tells the wind to be still, and it obeys. That is something that no man can ever do, no matter how wise. The point is that, yes, we are creatures and are invited to seek the wisdom that God graciously reveals to us, but we do this cognizant that God is wise in ways that the human mind is unable to comprehend. Hence, because God is supremely wise, we live in reverent obedience to Him, knowing that no man can ever compete with omniscience. But even more than that, even if a person spent the next 1,000 years receiving wisdom, they will never always make the right choice because their wisdom is never perfect. Only the wisdom of the Lord is perfect. This is why we trust Him, because He always does the right thing. The final piece of verse number 7 tells us that fools are not teachable and are fixed in their own godlessness. The fool does not lack intelligence, opportunities, or examples. Rather, the fool is full of wickedness. As a result, they are wise in their own eyes. Even more, the text says that the fool is neither indifferent or neutral about God. They instead despise his wisdom and instruction. This helps to explain why fools describe the cross of Christ as foolishness because they are not wise. 1 Corinthians 1.18 Fools are blind with eyes wide open and are unable to see that sin is what makes the world as broken as it is. They are unable to see that Christ is the only Redeemer. They don't want to see that their foolishness will only lead to condemnation. The sad news is that if God did not reveal His wisdom, we would all have no hope because all of us are fools by nature. Foolishness is natural. Wisdom is supernatural. Proverbs 1.7 therefore ends in a contrast. It says wisdom is not something just intellectual or acquired. Wisdom is relational, and a relationship with the Lord will make you wise for everyday life. If you don't have a relationship with God, then you don't have wisdom. You'll actually despise wisdom because you are a fool. In closing, what I will say is this. Even though Proverbs opens talking about the wisdom of Solomon, let us remember that not even Solomon lived out the wisdom of Proverbs. For example, as 1 Kings 11 verses 1 to 6 tells us, Solomon had hundreds of wives who turned his heart to other gods as he grew old. Thus, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This historical fact communicates a simple message that we cannot look to Solomon as the prime example for wisdom. But as Matthew 12 tells us, there is one greater than Solomon whose delight is the fear of the Lord, Isaiah 11.3. The one greater than Solomon is Jesus Christ. The wisdom of Proverbs points directly to him. 
the gospel according to Proverbs reveals to us that no person has ever lived in precise alignment with God's wisdom. No one, of course, except Christ. Consequently, the wisdom of Proverbs is Christ's wisdom in that he is the only man who not only knew all its wisdom, he also lived that wisdom. The gospel according to Proverbs tells us that you and I will never be wise enough. We will never be able to do the right thing all the time. The only person who sees exactly the way God sees and does according to what God desires is God's Son. This is why we simply trust the Son of God. As 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 To reject Christ therefore means rejecting all the treasures of the wisdom of God. In the end, as we now set a course to read the book of Proverbs, we know that the fear of the Lord is what lays the foundation for everything else. We rely on the wisdom of God who is a person whom we grow in a relationship with. Reverence for Christ is the beginning of wisdom. This will conclude our introductory lesson on Proverbs. I hope you will join me for episode 7.2. Until next time. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.